1: While you're listening, go to archpodnet.com slash members and support our efforts. Let's get to the show.
2: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast
1: Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 185.
1: On today's show, we talk about archaeological sites that have been uncovered by recent droughts.
2: Let's dig a little deeper, but we might but not have to because it's just been uncovered deep. naturally. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally shallow.
1: Oh, silver linings.
2: <laughs> All right. Welcome to the show, everybody. How's it going?
1: Pretty good.
2: Yeah, we are traveling across montana right now mm-hmm. literally right now we're just like on an overnight stop
1: <laughs> yeah we are we're on our way to our next destination we were just in glacier national park of course i think we mentioned that last time mm-hmm. and now we are headed to another national park which has some i can't remember what it's called it's got like moons and
2: Praetors craters the moon. yeah that one that's it's basically a national park that's a huge lava flow yeah in idaho yeah that should yeah. be cool too so, so. Anyway, what it doesn't have is any upright stones put there by humans (laughs) that are now revealed by drought like Spain does. (laughs) Right.
1: So we've got some news articles this week, and I know we had talked about doing an episode on Glacier National Park last week. However... It's in progress. It is in progress. Stop hassling me. I know, right? It is. We got some great audio. It's coming, but we thought we would cover some news stories this week because there's been some cool stuff that has come out and give you a little bit more time to to get it together on the Glacier episode. <laughs> we've,
2: got a, we've got an interview next week, too. And it's with somebody who's been on the show before talking about the archaeology of the night.
1: Yeah.
2: And she's back with an edited volume still talking about archaeology of the night, but in, in kind of a different way. So that be, cool be a, too. should yeah. be a fun episode. We might do that one before the next Glacier one. Yeah,
1: yeah. But we'll get there. Don't worry. We got some great yeah. audio. So that's definitely happening.
2: Yep, indeed. Yeah. So anyway, Spanish Stonehenge.
1: Yeah. So this whole episode is going to be about Archaeological sites that have been revealed by the recent really terrible drought that That's the happening world pretty much everywhere. is in. Yeah. yeah, I think all of our stories actually happen to be European because those were just the ones that that stuck out to us. But it is happening everywhere in the world because
2: the only thing we have is dead bodies and boats.
1: Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag oh Lake mead. <laughs> I know like mead and. <laughs> vegas keeps coming up with dead bodies like one of them was in a barrel and they think might be like a mob victim and stuff like that from the 70s so well, what was
2: one of the articles you found they they started out with if you recently dumped a body yeah. in a reservoir you should must be, nervous be worried. Times. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah totally yeah. so the drought is definitely <laughs> revealing things in lakes and in water that wasn't normally yeah. visible before and Some of it we've known about. Some of it, like, you know, human remains in Lake Mead, we didn't know about. So, yeah. (laughs) And
2: and some of the interesting things that have been found, it's not like, again, like you said, we knew it was there. Yeah. Because it was made a reservoir within the last, like, you know, 50, 60, 70 years. Yeah. But sometimes these things were inundated by the reservoir before we really had a proper way to record them, Mm -hmm. you know, or in some cases before there were even laws kind of preventing that yeah. sort of
1: thing. Yeah, or an administration that didn't particularly care about protecting the Which means the cultural resources? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and that's kind of an example of what's going on with the Spanish Stonehenge that has emerged from a drought-hit dam. That's the name mm-hmm. of the article. And it is officially known as the dolmen of Guadalperal.
2: Peral? What kind of peril?
1: <laughs> I think oh. that's like a name, maybe. little peril? But it's been dubbed the Spanish Stonehenge, of course, because anything with rocks standing up is going to be called, be compared to, like the original, the OG rocks standing up site. Right. So, yeah. Right. Doesn't look at all like Stonehenge to me in the pictures. But I'm going to
2: start calling the Stonehenge in England the British Spanish Stonehenge. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, because this one. I don't think it's older necessarily. It dates to 5000 BCE. That's kind of close to Stonehenge times, right? Yeah. And it's a circle of dozens of megalithic stone. It's located in the Valdecanas Reservoir, which is in the central province of Caceres in Spain.
2: Yeah, the reservoir is, it says it's, the article said it said it's the lowest in 60 years at 28% yeah. capacity. And I'm like, how long has this reservoir been around?
1: I think it's only been about 60 years. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, the summer, of course, as we all know, it's been brutally hot in Europe with very little rainfall. And in particular, rural Spain is really feeling the effects of
2: this. Mm-hmm.
1: And of course, this low reservoir is just one of the the side effects of that terrible drought that they're going through.
2: Yeah, and this was originally discovered or at least documented by... The German archaeologist, and of course he's German, because in the 1920s, the Germans found everything. <laughs> I feel like I've seen so many articles and papers where Germans just found stuff they in the 20s always, and, and teens.
1: Yeah, well, I think they yeah. were very interested in archaeological resources at that time. So yeah. they were looking for that kind of stuff.
2: Right, right. It's not to
1: say that the local people didn't know it was there. I'm sure they did. But oh, it yeah. Was,
2: locals always know it's there. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, the German archaeologist Hugo Obermeyer uh, in 1926. It just reminds me, like, again, Germans... Olduvai Gorge, yeah. which we talked about uh, in a not-so-recent episode,
1: mm-hmm.
2: is sort of like one of the cradles of humanity kind of thing yeah. in, in uh, Africa. But it's named Olduvai from the pie plant, mm-hmm. but that whole area was named for a German, I'm pretty sure a German explorer that was down there that oh, was kind of really? like one of the first, like, you know, white people, so to speak, to yeah. see that area. Yeah. So, anyway.
1: Very, the culture is very into the, yeah. like, discovery of, well, I guess resources, you know, like the, the cultural yeah. history, you know?
2: Yeah. So the reservoir was created basically in 1963 or so for a rural development project under the uh, dictatorship of Francisco Franco.
1: Yeah. And this is where we're talking about like a administration that's maybe not necessarily that interested in protecting mm-hmm. the resources because it doesn't sound like it was excavated or documented all that well before they just sort of flooded the area. Like, they saw it, they knew it was there, and they're like, okay, reservoir now, bye.
2: (laughs) Well, and prior to this, it was exposed three other times. Yeah. This is the fourth one since the reservoir was flooded. And I'm like, I don't know when those were, but did they have an opportunity to record them then? I'm sure now somebody's flying a drone around it, doing photogrammetry, doing all kinds of fun stuff. But what have they done in the past?
1: Yeah, I don't know if the previous ones. Now, some of those droughts have been, like, fairly recent. Like, 2018 was another really bad drought across Europe. We'll talk about that more in the next segment, but yeah, I think those those droughts have been somewhat recent, so it might be that it hasn't been until the last few years that it's been exposed, and then also there's been interest in recording it yeah. from an archaeological standpoint.
2: Now we said this was called the Dolmen of Guadalperal. Um, yeah. a dolmen is a, I guess in this area because they don't call them this in England. I'm not no, sure. No, they the don't in England, but, but
1: I think across like yeah. mainland Europe they call them right. dolmens.
2: Anyway, they're vertically arranged stones and they usually support a flat boulder. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And if you go look at the pictures of this one in particular, you'll see that there's no flat boulders like across the top of not any anymore. of these. Yeah, they they've come yeah. down. They're not
2: they can probably tell if one was placed there cuz it would have been yeah would have been heavy would have would have caused some wear or mm-hmm. something like that. And they would
1: have had to do something to secure it even if it's well, just like not
2: if it's heavy enough. <laughs> well,
1: I just mean like the shape of the stone that it's getting put on top mm. of like they should yeah. they would have done something to make it level or whatever, right. you know.
2: Yeah. And of course we don't know exactly what this was used for. You know, of yeah. course not.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But uh, dolmens are interesting, though, because human remains have been found near a lot of them. The ones that have been found sort of across mm-hmm. Europe and experts are kind of speculating that they might be some kind of like tomb or funerary monument sort of thing for the people of that time.
2: Does that mean like lots of human remains found around one or there's always yeah. at least one set of human remains found around one?
1: Right. That's going to I don't know. I didn't find that in my research. Because it's
2: like the flat stone. Like how big was this flat stone? And was it more of a funeral rites sort of alter. Right. And then they were buried nearby. You know, I wonder. But
1: yeah, I, I don't know. It would make sense that it would be a single tomb because that much effort to get those stones in place and everything. I could see a leader, a really mm-hmm. strong leader of a group of people inspiring that kind of work, you know, to do that for their funeral area. But anyway. I don't yeah.
2: Know. And a little bit of a. I guess political statement coming up here but yeah. in Spain farmers like they are everywhere yeah. are really suffering from the drought you know crops yeah. are dying there's not enough water for livestock you know all those things mm-hmm. but they are experiencing like a rise in tourism uh-huh. because <laughs> they can boat out to this uh, yeah. to this Spanish thing but here's the thing somebody's profiting off of this rise in tourism but I guarantee it's not the farmers
1: no it's not you know, no if if, yeah. there,
2: if there could be some way for a state to I don't know, raise money in one way, but give it to the people who are losing money in another way, yeah. you know, to help support the infrastructure like farmers do. Yeah. But it never does work out that way.
1: I know. the There's a quote in the article from an actual, like, boat tour guy who, like, owns a boat mm-hmm. tourist business. And he's, like, happy that the stones have reappeared because yeah. he can just... He's, he's basically got a side branch of his business going now where it's taking tourists out to see the stones. And I don't think it's particularly regulated. I think they can just kind of hop all over them and, like take pictures and do what they want you know well
2: they're going to be underwater again presumably in a few months
1: yeah exactly like what can they do to them that would be worse than being submerged so and there was no talk about i mean there's a little bit of talk about an archaeologist who's doing some some work to record it but it's unclear like what kind of work they can do other than just like taking pictures and plotting the stones really i I doubt they're going to do any kind of actual excavation to look for maybe remains that might go with it so very much a recovery quick recovery situation
2: well, I'm about to do two things. The first one is jump on my American Airlines app and book a flight to Spain so we can go there and I can carve at the base of one of those stones, since it's basically unregulated, a picture of a cheeseburger oh my God. with a line cross through it. Oh
1: my God.
2: And the second thing I'm going to do is end this segment so we can talk about hunger stones back in a minute. Hey, everyone. Chris Webster from the APN here. We have used a number of solutions for recording our podcast with interesting people from around the world. None have worked better than Zencaster. For the last several years, we've been using Zencaster for high quality recordings that are easy to do and put little to no stress on the guest. And now Zencaster has high quality video and even automatic transcription. So click the link in the show notes or head over to Zencastr.com pricing and use the code TAS. To get 30% off your first three months of the pro plan. If you're starting a podcast anytime soon, it's totally worth it. Again, click the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months. And they even give a little back to us when you do.
1: Keep this conversation going by joining our members only Slack team. There's always vibrant conversations going on over there between members and hosts about the topics we're podcasting about and more. Also get access to our back catalog of bonus material and ad-free shows. You get all this for $7.99 a month or less than $80 US per year. If you get the annual subscription, support archeological education and outreach by supporting the APN. Go to arcpodnet.com slash members for details. That's arcpodnet.com members.
0: All right. We're
2: back from Spain. We saw the monument. This is TAS 185.
1: <laughs> one, And we're heading to Central Europe now, right?
2: <laughs> that's right. I mean, we weren't too far away.
1: Not too far. Yeah. yeah.
2: So we're over there and we're going to find out why everybody's so <laughs> hungry, Hungry. hungry,
1: Hungry and hangry, probably. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So this article is called, What are hunger stones and why did they terrify people in Europe?
2: I'd like to point out that I was first made aware of these from something you've given me a little bit of shade over in the past. Uh, and that's yeah. my Weather Channel video watching habits before Yeah,
1: bed. you're like super obsessed with watching. Like you've it seen is, every video that Weather Channel has ever put out, I think. Listen,
2: on the app, on the smartphone <laughs> app, or at least the iPhone app, and I know if you're not in the United States, you can't really get Weather Channel videos, but... Uh, Because I just don't think their app works in other countries, but (laughs) either way, they have these like short 30 to 60 second long videos that are sometimes narrated, sometimes with text, Mm -hmm. a lot of times weather related, but not always. Mm -hmm. It's just like these little trending videos that are just interesting little news bits. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why they do it, but I love it because it's usually only about, you know, Four or five a day yeah. during the week, if yeah. that. Yeah. You know, then on the weekends, and, and they're
1: curated from like other sources, so it's not like. Oh yeah. I don't think they're really like sitting there like putting together this content. They're well, they're finding they do, it online and then. All
2: they do is narrator. They put the text yeah, over it. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So.
1: But you do have this like obsession with watching them right before you go to sleep at night. They're it's sort of your little like most people read. No, no. You watch Weather Channel videos. It's, it's so cool. great.
2: <laughs> so great. Anyway, it makes me want to go get yeah. a Hungerstein
1: hunger sign yeah so you saw this on one of your weather channel videos originally and i went looking for some articles about it because it is really interesting hunger stones are carvings into river stones that are only revealed when the water level drops low during a drought yeah. so you can't they're they are submerged they're underwater you can't see them and you can't see what they said until the drought happens and it drops
2: mm-hmm. yeah they're found in central europe primarily in german and czech rivers Yeah. And like you said, during droughts.
1: Yeah, it's it's crazy. They they really are truly geographically like limited, right? Mm -hmm. They're they're in a couple Czech rivers and German rivers, and I think in some like Swiss rivers too. Mm -hmm. And like that's really it.
2: Well, it sounds like culturally this thing kind of caught on. Yeah. And people were like, Oh yeah, that's a good way to kind of mark time, (laughs) right? (laughs) Because you know, droughts happen I wouldn't say frequently, but droughts happen enough in somebody's lifetime. That they're very aware of it, and when mm-hmm. your entire food web basically is tied directly to the weather, yeah, and and I say that as almost a historical thing because right now, yes, we're in a drought. Yes, like California, Nevada, they're being starting to get water restrictions yeah. and things like that yeah. because of things like Lake Mead and other reservoirs not mm-hmm. having water. Mm-hmm. But in reality, people's lives haven't really changed that much. No, they might be paying a little more for food, yeah, but they're not really suffering,
1: right? Like the globalization of of food basically has made it so that probably nobody's going to starve during a drought.
2: Well, they're not until they are. I feel like, I feel like without people restricting what they do and, and really, really being conscious of where they get their food and how they get their food and how much food that they eat and what they're eating. It's going to be like, it's going to be like the pandemic. It's going to be like, it's not a problem. It's not a problem. It's not a problem. Holy crap. What do we do now? Yeah. You know,
1: I still think though, no first world countries. They're going to figure something out. They're going to get help from neighbors, especially in Europe where you've got the EU supporting them. Yeah, I just don't think that anybody is really, truly going to f- f- feel the starving effects of a drought like they did in the past, which oh. is why they carved on these stones is because people were literally starving back then. Yeah. And I don't think they're going to feel that kind of effect. So these st- these hunger stones are almost more like a, a novelty now when they appear. Mm-hmm. Yes, the drought is bad, but there's government in place to help mitigate those effects so that people aren't going to starve
2: right but it is a good harbinger of you know things to come if you don't do something now it's true and it's happening
1: more and more i mean the the drought is happening because of global warming things are not getting better they're only going to get worse unless we all do some really big things and make some really big changes
2: the most famous of these stones is in the Elbe River, might be Elbe, L E L B E. Yeah, I'm not sure yeah. how, exactly. Uh, river yeah. in the Czech town of Dessen.
1: And it's in the northwest part of the country near the German border. Yeah. And it's inscribed, if you can see me, weep. <laughs> <laughs> and this inscription is believed to date to 1616. Back but there, when the
2: word weep was used. It, right, yeah. right. No.
1: But there's actually a lot of years inscribed on it. That's not the only one. It's just that that, like... Really sad sounding inscription is mm-hmm. what they think is probably from 1616, but yeah. they're but they're not entirely entirely sure.
2: What probably makes this famous, I don't know, aside from maybe having a good publicist, is uh before nineteen hundred, the following droughts are commemorated <laughs> on the stone. Yeah. 1417. And I don't know if this the inscription 1616, but anyway, the first inscription is 1417. Yeah,
1: I think that's just yeah. the date, though. Like, they the don't date. have anything else to go along with yeah. it. Yeah. And then
2: 1616, 1707, 1746, 1790, 1800, 1811, 1830, 1842, 1868, 1892, and...
1: 1893. So many droughts,
2: right? I know they've had more droughts between now and 1893. It's just nobody bothered to carve it on the stone.
1: Or they weren't bad enough that the stone
2: was revealed. I think people just stopped carving on stones at that point.
1: Maybe. There are some, you can see in the picture, there's some like dates in the 1900s in there too. I think people, I think whoever did the study was only looking pre-1900. Yeah. I think
2: just 1893, they just started posting pictures of it on Instagram. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) But
1: so like we talked about in the last segment, Europe is currently experiencing the worst drought in 500 years.
2: Apparently not. 1893, 1892, 1868. There
1: was like eight of them in the 1800s. Yeah, there was. And, And they also are experiencing like record breaking heat waves. So it's just kind of like a hot literally hot mess in europe right now <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah and see here the last time the stone was revealed was in 2018 exactly so only four years ago yeah the last drought yeah. so i really think they should just keep carving on it
1: i think they did so yeah. there if you look in the article there is a new stone that somebody and this could be in a different river the article is like a little bit disconnected they were jumping around talking about different stones in different places but there is one that that was put into one of these towns in 2018 that's a similar message, but it's just an up- updated version of it.
2: It needs to be a solar-powered, waterproof-cased iPad down there. You can just, like, add <laughs> yours to it. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah,
2: drought is relatively common in Europe, you know, just because of the yeah. you know the way things are. But it was just particularly bad in the late medieval period. We've talked about some some weather reasons why yeah. that is. Yeah, yeah, I guess
1: they were experiencing, like, mega droughts and well
2: there was the there was the medieval warming that caused lots of problems, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. And one of the ways that they have studied that is there in twenty fifteen there was a study that looked at tree rings, mm-hmm. and that was kind of adding evidence to the fact that, like you said, there was a warming period, and that they they call them mega drops specifically in that study, and that was between the eleventh and mid fifteenth centuries, yeah,
2: yeah, cool thing about tree rings, and we just looked at this. I don't even remember what national park or where we were. I think we might've been in Banff or something like that, but there was a huge tree cut somewhere in some museum we were in.
1: Oh yeah. And
2: we looked at it and the cool thing is, I think it was up in Banff. Mm -hmm. If you don't have to know anything about the climate of the area, Mm -hmm. right? You can just look at a cross section of tree rings and you look at the average tree ring, Mm -hmm. right? The average tree ring is going to be a certain thickness and tree rings, the, the outer, bark of a tree grows more during times that are wetter and mm-hmm. more plentiful for the trees resources standpoint mm-hmm. than not right and if it's if it's uh, if it's got to restrict itself it just grows a thinner shell basically that year mm-hmm. so if you look at a, a cluster of tree rings if you're in a, a mega drought, you're gonna have multi years where it's just tightly packed rings. Yep. You know, like lines on a topo map. Yep. That's the hill.
1: It is. It's, <laughs>
2: it's climbing up this hill of desperation <laughs>
1: right. to try
2: to live. Yeah. And then it hits the good times where the rings spread back out. <laughs> yeah. That's so
1: totally accurate. Yeah. And again,
2: you don't need to know anything about the climate. Yeah. You can just say, Okay, I know however many years back this was, something happened here. Yeah. You know? Yep. And mm-hmm. and you can find you can get some finer detail on that when you start including like Lake cores and ice cores and, and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But yeah, yeah, that cool. tree
1: ring stuff is really, really neat. So and, much we can
2: learn. Yeah. Just from tree rings.
1: And to have these hunger stones basically confirming what tree rings is telling you too is really neat because tree rings is like one like scientific way of looking yeah. at it. But then you've also got like sort of the primary resource of people carving in stone saying that they are weeping because they're so hungry. <laughs> well, and
2: that is the cool thing because awesome. sometimes when we look at these scientific methods that are a little bit more relative like mm-hmm. tree rings, like we can't actually look inside a tree ring and say it was this year and it did this, mm-hmm. but we kind of can if we know how to read it. But when you have the corroborating evidence, yeah. it just starts solidifying what we know. And if you can say, well, tree rings from this time look like there was a drought and you've got somebody carving into a stone, I'm yep. weeping now because yeah. there's Because <laughs> I have
1: no food. Yeah. Yeah. yeah totally. So That's crazy.
2: It's just good parallel corroborating <laughs> evidence. That's one of the things we look for in archaeology all the time. Yep. If you've got mm-hmm. one thing that has a date, you're like yeah, if that dating method is solid, we're probably going to believe it. Mm-hmm. But if we can find like two or three other things that independently, through a completely different means, comes up with the same answer yeah. that's hard to refute
1: it it really is, yeah, yeah, yeah. so the dust stone is the most famous of these hunger stones, but there are other ones in nineteen o four. a stone emerged in the spree River near the village of Trebatch, on which was inscribed, "When you see this stone again, you'll cry." So shallow was the water in the year 1417. Yeah. Which is interesting because that's a different stone from the Dessen one, but also talking about the year 1417. Yeah, So that year must have been like real bad. <laughs> I would
0: imagine. Yeah. yeah.
1: The city archives of Perna, Germany, records a stone with the year 1115 mm. engraved on it, but its exact location is no longer known. Crazy. Yeah. So either it's still there and we just can't find it again, or maybe it's gone, been removed. Who knows? Well, also, but,
2: depending on how deeply it was carved and the, yeah. the swiftness of the river it was in.
1: It could have been worn away. It
2: could have been worn away. Yeah, totally. Yeah, to where, not worn completely, maybe, but worn to where it's difficult to see again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a large stone in Mosul near Trebin Trebak, I'm getting all mm-hmm. these wrong, where bottles of wine would be buried near its base uh, yep. to be drunk next time they're visible.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which I thought was... A sort of lighter take on the whole yeah. drought and starving theme of they these stones. Wax,
2: they must wax cover the, uh, the, the top of tops. it. Otherwise yeah. the corks would just get soaked.
1: Yeah. They must've. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the Alterstein or Elfenstein.
2: Elfenstein.
1: Was a hunger stone in the Rhine river near Bacharach which in the 19th century was thought of as a Roman altar to Bacchus. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and that stone was dynamited in 1850 because it was a danger to the like growing shipping industry that was coming into was that big. area. Yeah, it was huge. There's actually a map of it. Again, there's a really cool article, not the IFL science article that is linked in the notes below, but in there's another one that's about maps more. And there's an actual mm-hmm. map from like the 1600s that shows the location of this rock. And it even says like Bacchus or something on it. And like, that's clearly what they thought of that rock as. I don't think it's actually inscribed, but it only appears when the water is super low. And then of course in 1850, they got rid of it. But we do have the evidence from the old map showing what Mm -hmm. it was and where it was and what they called it, which is neat.
2: So if you're not in the Czech Republic or Germany or something like that, Mm -hmm. and you know, you've got more resources, you've got an empire, you've got slaves. Instead (laughs) of just like one stone, you'll build a hunger bridge. (laughs) And that bridge will be be submerged and you won't be able to use it. It's only usable in times of drought. Oh,
1: my
0: God. Let's
2: talk about Rome on the next segment. (laughs) What do you use for appointment and task scheduling? I used to constantly move things around in my calendar that were just tasks I needed to do in favor of meetings. Now I let an intelligent AI do that with Motion. In Motion, all I have to do is create tasks with a soft or hard deadline, state how long I think it will take and whether it can be broken up and Motion does the rest. It puts the task where it's a best fit for me getting it done by the deadline. The scheduler then puts appointments with people wherever they schedule and moves the tasks around them. Support the APN with a little kickback if you sign up and try Motion for free at www.arcpodnet.com motion. That's arcpodnet.com motion.
1: we have lots of great shows on the Archaeology Podcast Network. Head over to arcpodnet.com and you can see all the shows that are currently producing podcasts. Scroll down a bit more and you'll see some great shows from the past that still have great content. Search for your favorite shows on your podcasting app or listen right on the page at arcpodnet.com.
2: All right. Welcome back to the drought episode. Of <laughs> it's, like,
1: it's like the silver linings of drought because I know like drought is really bad <sighs> right. and it sucks for a lot of people and it did in the past and it does in the present, but
2: you can pull something good out of it. Yeah. yeah. Like
1: find some cool archeological sites, make you feel better about the fact that there's not enough food. I don't know. Yeah. yeah.
2: So we're going over to Rome to the Tiber River.
1: Yeah. The hidden ancient Roman bridge of Nero emerges from the Tiber during severe drought. That's the name of the article. And this river has had several years of low levels, and it has exposed the stone foundations of the Pons Neronianus, or the Bridge of Nero. Yep. So this is not a new find, exactly. It was submerged, which would make it difficult to access and to study. But people knew it was there.
2: Yeah. I'm kind of curious about this one because I didn't do the research on this one, but Mm -hmm. it was like, how is the water low enough for long enough that you decide to build a bridge? And now it's covered in water. Well, what happened? It's
1: just the foundations. Oh, okay. So like the bridge was dismantled at uh, some point because it was like there's a lot of reasons why this bridge didn't work out and we'll mm-hmm. get into it. But it was basically dismantled at, at a certain point after it was built. Okay. And this is just the foundation that appears every once in a while in the low, low levels
0: right. of well, water.
2: Let's get into who and who and where. So yeah. Nero was a sixteen year old fifth emperor of Rome <laughs> <laughs> who reigned from fifty four to sixty eight CE.
1: Yeah, he was so young when he became emperor, but he did build public structures. He won military victories abroad. Like He, well, seemed to he was be in like... charge
2: when military victories were run abroad. Uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> but I mean, you have to imagine he helped make some decisions. Sure. But he wasn't really viewed as like a super great emperor i don't think his passion was art and music and chariot races apparently <laughs> you know got to have your
2: priorities i just imagine any 16 year old roman emperor like <laughs> as nice as they were with their passion for art was basically just like joffrey from game of thrones right? flinging people over the wall <laughs> the- Looking. Like, what else would a 16-year-old emperor do? I don't
1: know. I think it kind of, I kind of get the impression that he was maybe a little bit soft, although maybe not because he actually had his mother and one of his wives killed while he was emperor. So, right. like, who knows? Maybe he was a little bit Joffrey-like.
2: Well, Joffrey, his mother and his wife were all the same thing, wasn't it? Oh wait, that was no. <laughs> oh,
1: that's not. I'm not sure. I mean, not <laughs> wrong, but also like not quite right. <laughs> oh my god, speaking of how excited are you for the prequel? Oh, yeah, I think it good. starts like any day now. It starts
2: tomorrow actually. It starts today as we're recording this.
1: You probably shouldn't And releasing <laughs>
2: this. Who knows?
1: Oh, so you're just going to admit that we're yeah. like recording and releasing on Listen, the same day? Okay, that's coming out. We're all right. Really busy. I thought we were hiding that, but cool. No. <laughs>
2: No, we if you're listening to this, if your phone just like pinged and said new episode, that's because we literally just uploaded like, it and recorded and it.
1: Like literally just recorded it yeah. anyway. Anyway. All right. Well, yeah, we are busy.
2: At least it's coming out.
1: Yeah. OK, so back to Nero. He's a OK emperor, right? He did drain the Empire's coffers, building the Domus Aria, which is called the Golden Palace. Of course he did. But he just ran into some trouble. There was a huge fire in 64 CE. He really struggled to like get Rome on the right track and rebuild it after that happened. And then in 68 CE, just four years later, at the age of 30, he was basically declared public enemy number one by the Roman Senate. Maybe blaming him for not rebuilding the city better after the fire, not having money. Mm -hmm. Who knows? But he ended up killing himself. So that was the end of Nero. Now, this bridge, it's not actually confirmed that it's from Nero's time. There probably was something there before him. But the best guess is that this foundation of this bridge that appears when there's drought is probably the one that he had built during his time. Mm -hmm. So the first instance of calling this bridge Pons Neronianus is in the 12th century. So that's kind of why they're like, eh, was it actually built by Nero? Or was it just like the scholars in the 12th century thought it was built by Nero? You know, yeah. you get far enough away, it's just hard to tell,
2: right? Because there could have—it there, seems like there was a bridge there earlier, yeah. perhaps, and he just like fortified it. Yeah,
1: yeah, like yeah. made it bigger or whatever.
2: Which I don't know if there's a if there's something that needs to be crossed. The Romans were almost obsessed with building roads, so it wouldn't yeah. surprise me if there was already a bridge there at some point.
1: Exactly, and maybe he just
2: made it better. Well, yeah, you know, and I or think his, his reign did
1: exactly. And I think that they needed a larger bridge in that area because it was partly to give access to these gardens and properties that are that were across the river in the Vatican area. Mm-hmm. But also there was like this promenading thing that the Roman armies would do. And I think the bridge, they needed that bridge for this promenade thing that they would do with the armies. And it just needed to be bigger.
2: So basically just like, like a marching parade. your, marching your soldiers and equipment across. I think so. Like, like, a,
1: like but like victoriously, like, like, like North North we style. won. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah, Maybe.
2: Yeah. <laughs> but Yeah, Yeah, the location isn't great for a bridge, though.
1: No, it's like really a bad choice. They didn't obviously have engineers who could inform them Mm -hmm. of this back in Roman times, but it's in a tight bend, and that is subject to the natural movement of the river, Mm -hmm. meaning that it would undermine the abutments as the river changed shape naturally, and then they'd have to either fix it or it would become unstable. Rewroute the river. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
2: Yeah, something. So, So.
1: For that reason, it was apparently only used until around the mid 200s CE. And then it was dismantled. Most of those stones were used for a new bridge, like upriver in a more stable location. Nice. That's the story of Nero's Bridge.
2: (laughs) All right. Well, that was a short article and that's pretty much all we have for you this week. But like I said, we have a really cool interview coming up again, talking about the archaeology of the night in a new book. And that book isn't available yet, I don't think. But we'll link to uh, when it will become available if it Mm -hmm. is. And we're going to interview the authors of this edited volume. Edited volumes in archaeology and sciences really are a good way to get a whole bunch of information out there with the scholars not actually having to write an entire book. Yeah. That means is they've got a whole bunch of contributors that have a it's a themed book. So they brought in a whole bunch of contributors that did some things. The authors themselves obviously contributed some articles, Mm -hmm. but they edited these to, to make them less like you know, paper oriented. Yep. And and then that kind of structure and, and brought it into a book. So it's pretty cool because you get a lot of different perspectives and research research methods and, and all kinds of stuff. Yep. But totally. edited volumes can also be a little more thick to read because of that. Yeah. Because they're they're not really they're not necessarily written for, like, a popular audience.
1: Yeah, they're not, like... There's not a thread of storytelling, really. Yeah. Like, you can get with some of the really well-done books.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Yeah, so, and then we've got our Glacier episode coming up, and mm-hmm. as Rachel said, we took this tour, and I recorded, with his permission, the tour guides. And and the tour guide is a Blackfeet Indian, mm-hmm. uh, Blackfoot Indian, I guess. They call themselves The Blackfeet, but they are a Blackfoot Indian. Oh, are they? Okay. Yeah, so... yeah. Anyway, he's Native American, Blackfoot. But he's... <sighs> Super cool. He he went to college at the University of Washington, got a, a degree in uh, like communications and speaking and mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff, and and actually won some awards around that. And he actually has a Rose Bowl ring too because he was yeah, a football he was player. A football player. Yeah,
1: yeah. He went to Washington so, on scholarship, I think. Yeah, but yeah. He's really made the most out of that education right. for sure.
2: Plus he's got like twelve albums out of yeah. the music that he he's writes. He's a singer,
1: he's an amazing singer, songwriter, yeah. and we have some of his stuff that we're gonna put into the he episode would just, and share.
2: He would just stop on this we'd stop at a lookout and he'd give us this history and then he'd tell us this story, this Native American blackfoot blackfoot story.
1: Yeah.
2: And then play the song to go along with it that he yeah. wrote. And yeah. and I he allowed me to record all of it and said we could use it in the podcast. But yeah. if you wanna look him up before we do this, his name is Jack Gladstone. Yes. His stuff is on Spotify and Apple Music. Mm-hmm. So Go check it out. It's really kind of cool stuff. Yeah,
1: it's all inspired by glacier, the glacier area, and yeah. like Montana and in the area that his, the the Blackfeet tribe is, and it's just mm-hmm. really cool the way he's taken the Native American stories and put it into yeah song format.
2: Yeah, it's pretty cool. So yep. listen to that in advance of that episode coming out. Mm-hmm. That one's going to be a little bit different format, which is why it it's taking me be. longer to edit. I
1: would love. I can't wait to get feedback on how it goes yeah. because I'm excited about it because it is different and we'll just see if you guys like it yeah basically (laughs) yep so
2: all right well with that we're gonna get back on the road i mean quite literally get back on the road
1: yeah so yep
2: yeah we're on our way to reno so if anybody is in the reno area for the month of september let us know maybe we'll hook up i maybe we'll do a, a live podcast down at the reno collective yeah, Rachel's not too uh, happy about that. I don't
1: know about why. <laughs> we'll see. So we'll see. I
2: might have to bring on a different co host, yeah. Mr. Brian Woods, oh who was God. on this show a long time ago when this was a radio show. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, so. <laughs> we'll All right, see. we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This is Chris Webster, founder of the APN and one of the chief editors. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. If you want to keep the conversation going and support us along the way, go to arcpodnet.com slash members. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. And thanks for listening.